So we are at the end of 1 Corinthians. This is our last time to consider what Paul had to say to the Corinthians and to us. And the last thing that Paul wants to talk about with the Corinthians and with us is the resurrection. So you're going to notice in this passage a lot of word pictures, a lot of metaphors. And what I want you to get from that is that there are no easy answers on what happens when we die. Anyone who tells you to go see a movie or read a book and that that's going to have all you need to know about what happens when you die is wrong. This is a tough question, and as Paul has already said to the Corinthians, we see through a glass darkly. We don't see face to face yet. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read a little bit more than 20 verses, so consider yourself warned. This is a long passage of scripture. What I want you to listen for in this passage of scripture is all the times, count them if you want to, if that'll keep you engaged, all the times that Paul references the creation stories found in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. So the first creation story of the seven days or the second creation of the Garden of Eden. Listen for references to the creation stories. Paul wrote, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be. But a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some sort of other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and of the earthly it is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown a physical body, and it is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man was from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot simply inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, and I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I count seven, seven references to the creation stories. Now, there is no scholarship to corroborate my findings, and one reference in the story seems to blend into the next. So I would say it's hard to get an exact count of the Genesis reflections that are found in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Regardless of how many there are, I want you to know it's in there. It's like Paul took a canvas that already had a beautiful picture of creation on it, and he painted over it. He painted over it another beautiful picture of creation. On the first canvas, we see the creation of the animals and the birds and the fish, each with their own body, he writes. And the sun, we see the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, each with their own body. And Adam is created from the dust of the earth, dirt man, given the breath of life. And the sting of sin and death is also in that picture. And while this is a beautiful picture, one that's worthy of admiration, Paul is just not ready to put a frame on it and hang it on the wall. He wants us to know that the artist is still at work. Our very existence is being reimagined in the light of resurrection. Death does not mean the last stroke of the artist's brush. Death does not bring an end to the work of art. But the power of resurrection means that the configuration of the art continues. And so Paul begins to paint the second picture of creation on top of the first. He paints this last Adam, the man of heaven, Christ. And it seems to me that this second painting is unlike the first, that the second painting is abstract art. He depicts things like immortality and imperishability, the sound of a trumpet, and the twinkling of an eye. And then I hope also in this painting you see your own face, the artist's rendering of your face. You see that you are a part of this new creation, that there's a part of this canvas that is, in fact, portrait. Because multiple times in the text, Paul uses the word we, he uses the word us, he uses the phrase brothers and sisters, and the phrase my beloved. You are a part of God's ongoing work, this beautiful picture of resurrection. The last few months, I've been trying my hand at gardening. 
There's not much to see in my backyard. There's certainly not much for me to stand up on this stage and brag about. It is like a grand experiment in the garden in my backyard. One of the reasons that I think I'm doing it is probably because I want to know what my grandparents knew. My maternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather both spent a considerable amount of time digging around in the soil. Last weekend at my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, I met a man who knew my grandfather. And he said to me about my grandfather, he was a fine man. And then he quickly followed it with, I really admired his tractor. Tractor, he said. (laughs) And then my grandmother, my grandmother had a greenhouse that was attached to the side of her house. And it was full of plants in the winter and full of activity in the summer months, planting and repotting and transplanting the plants that she kept on her back porch. Toward the end of my grandmother's life, I noticed that she would steal away some key moments of time to go and sit on that back porch among her plants. First thing in the morning, afternoon coffee, About the time of sunset, that's where you would find her, out on the back porch with her plants. Here's my theory, and I think Paul would agree. It is the garden that tells the story of resurrection. Have you ever heard the line, you might be the only Bible another person ever sees? I often hear that line, and I think it might be true. But after studying this passage in 1 Corinthians, I want to say, you might be the only Bible another person ever sees if they've never been outside. (laughs) The truth of the resurrection is in the garden. You know, Paul, I believe would agree with me because in the opening part of this passage he states the question that he's going to address how are the dead raised and then he answers it by talking about sowing a seed but before he can get to that metaphor of sowing the seed there's so much energy in his answer that he opens either with the phrase you fools or how foolish It's as if he's saying to them, duh, the answer to your question about resurrection, it's all around you. The seed is sown into the ground in one body. That body, that form is lost. It dies. And another body appears above the ground, transformed. While the answer is obvious to those of us who have been outside It is also, I believe, worthy of some contemplation, some considering how amazing it is that the truth of resurrection was pre-programmed, pre-programmed into the world that we live in before we ever knew the story of Jesus and the story of his resurrection. In nature, as it surrounds us, the trees, the flowers, The plants of the harvest, they all speak of the resurrection. What a gift. 
chapter 15 contains the last persuasive or compelling argument that Paul has for the Corinthians. And you know how when you have something really important to say, sometimes you save it till the very end of the conversation. I often see this happening at my house when I tuck my children into bed at night. You know, the same nine-year-old child that has answered every question that I've had after school with a one-word response, fine, will then tell me something along the lines of, you know, I'm really worried about something that happened in school today, and then tell me the story. Or he'll tell me this is what happened on Thursday night. I'm really, really excited about going to the coast to fish this weekend. I can't wait for that. It seems as though Paul has done the same thing. He has saved the most important thing that he has to say to the Corinthians until the end. He wants to address the resurrection, and he believes that it's crucial crucial to address. It's really important. They need to know about it. Now, we think that probably the Corinthians had some skepticism about the resurrection, that they had an aversion to the idea that a body could be resuscitated after death. And that Greeks would think that was simply just gross. Now, I want, I'm going to give you an oversimplification. Because there are a lot, in the first century, there were a lot of views about life and about death and about how the resurrection works, whether or not there was a resurrection. But here's the basic view in the first century about the body and about life, about human life. Greeks thought that humans were embodied souls. So the body for Greeks was just a container that they wanted to escape, that they wanted to break out of. What was essential about the person, the human for the Greek, was inside the body and it was waiting to escape prison. But Hebrews thought, and Paul's coming out of the Hebrew tradition, speaking, writing to the Greeks, Hebrews believed that humans were animated bodies. So the body was a container, and it was purposefully constructed by the Creator, and it played a key role in one's personality. The pa- this passage in English, which is, of course, what we read this morning, is full of the word body. Over and over again, Paul uses the word body It's soma in Greek. My count is 14 times in this passage he directly uses the word body. So body is important to Paul. The whole passage on eternal life, on what lasts, is about body. And this is really hard for me to see. It's really hard for me to see, and I want to admit this to you. I believe it's really hard for me to see because I am so influenced. I swim around in the waters that uh, were created by the Greeks. So the most important thing uh, for the Greeks would be a never-dying soul, that one would have a never-dying soul. And it makes it hard for me to appreciate what Paul is teaching, which is basically all of what is essential about you is going with you. And that includes how you experience the world that surrounds you, how you experience the world that surrounds you in that container you're put in. Theologian Richard Hayes wrote, Paul is trying to make the resurrection appealing to an audience who thought that resurrection was appalling. 
So let's talk a little bit about what resurrection is not. Resurrection is not resuscitation. And that would be so gross to the Greeks, and it's kind of gross to me. Resurrection is not a zombie horror show. It's not just the same body coming back to life and walking around. That's not resurrection. Resurrection is not even you take your earthly body with you. So it's not a mummy horror show either. Paul doesn't speak of being resurrected in the same body. He knew that our earthly bodies would turn into dust. Instead, he's teaching transformation. He's teaching something that looks more like metamorphosis. Verse 44 in chapter 15 is um, translated in most editions. It's sown a physical body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. But the Jerusalem Bible translates it a little bit differently, a little bit more fully, and I like the truth that shows up there. When it is sown, it embodies the soul. When it is raised, it embodies the spirit, God's spirit. If the soul has its own embodiment here on earth, so does the spirit have its own embodiment in heaven. So when N.T. Wright is teaching on this passage in his uh, commentary, he talks about a car show. And he says, imagine a car show with two cars that look exactly the same. But the second car, the second car is a little bit different because the second car has a different kind of fuel than the first. The first has just the ordinary kind of fuel that we know goes in, go into a car. But the second car has a fuel that is clean, that is safe, that is limitless. It never runs out. That's what N.T. Wright says Paul is talking about And this body that is transformed into this new car that is run by a fuel that never runs out. It's limitless. Here's what I know about my body. The first thing I know about my body is it has limits. It is finite. For the first time a couple of weeks ago, I had a doctor use the phrase age-related when talking to me about a specific pain in my body. It was as if he was saying to me, Lady, that pain is not going to get any better. You are finally getting older. Our bodies are finite. They wear out. They fall sick. They decay. They return to dust. The Hebrews knew that. We know that. The second thing I know about my body is that how my body experiences the world matters. So much of how I engage Uh, with life is dependent both upon the strengths that I have in my body, but also the limitations of my body. When I was in my 30s, I considered myself a runner. Now, this did not come naturally for me. This was not something that I did as a child. I had a friend who worked over at Incarnate Word in the athletic department, and he witnessed some of my first efforts to move around the track at Incarnate Word. He later admitted to me that he told his wife after I was gone, who was my running partner, I don't know what you're thinking. That dog won't hunt. (laughs) Running was hard, but running was an experience that required my body. It was a very physical experience, and I learned a thing or two from my years of running. I learned a thing or two about perseverance that I could overcome adversity, that that dog could, in fact, hunt when the dog tried hard enough. 
Not a really fast dog, (laughs) but the dog could hunt. And I learned a thing or two about friendship. Author Nancy Mears wrote about her own experience of life with the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. She said this, I found my voice just where it ought to have been, in my body, in the body-warmed breath escaping my lungs and throat, forced by the demands of physical disease to embrace myself in the flesh, I couldn't write bodiless prose. The voice is the creature of the body that produces it. No body, no voice, no voice, no body. That's what I know to be true to my bones. Every body has varying degrees of ability and disability. And every body among us is sacred space. And so the third thing that I know about my body is this. What I do with it matters. What I do with it is significant. I do think that this text calls us to some consideration of intentionality about how we use our bodies, how we use our embodied lives. What we do, how we act, how we behave matters because those experiences help to define what we know about ourselves and what we know about God. So the metaphor of the seed reminds us That resurrection is transformation, it's not replacement. The kind of seed does, with a very high degree of certainty, predict the kind of plant that grows above the ground. Likewise, the life your body lives out on earth determines your resurrected body. Now, this is not to say that we can't make mistakes or we don't experience forgiveness. Of course, both of those things are true. Through faith in Christ, we share the power of his resurrection now and we begin to walk in newness of life. But what Paul wants the Corinthians to hear is don't stop walking. This is not one and done. Keep pursuing the newness of life. Step further down the road to transformation. And this means something different for each of us. For some of us, it might mean giving up an activity. For others, it might mean taking on an activity. How do you set aside space for resurrection and newness of life to come? A friend of mine referred to it this week as how do you practice resurrection? That would be important to believers. How can you practice this concept that you believe Now, lastly, I want you to note, since we're at the end of 1 Corinthians, that there is some debate as to the most significant passage in this letter. Like, where's the most important point? Some would say that it's right here at the end because Paul has waited until the very end to talk about this concept of resurrection, and it's so important that he wants everybody to know this. But others say that the most important point in 1 Corinthians is chapter 13, where Paul writes about love. So when Paul writes about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, is the most important thing. It's the pinnacle of the letter. It's where he he tells them what he needs them to know. But I like the idea that Paul is saying the same thing in both chapters. That the concept of resurrection does, in fact, require a degree of faith. We can't quite get it all. We do see through a glass 
darkly. And so faith is required to get this concept of resurrection. We have to trust that God does act and God will act. Faith, uh, resurrection also requires hope. We hope that God is good. We know that God is good and that God works in our world and the world among us. So hope is important as well and so is love. Resurrection means love. What happens on the cross is above all else a tremendous act of sacrifice. And it means for you and for me that God's great transformative love is triggered and flows into every part of our lives. So I have wondered this week what it might look like to practice resurrection. And I think it means that I surrender a part of my life, a part of a relationship. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a part of my job, a day of my week or an hour of my time. I surrender that. And it's not abandonment. It's not surrender and walk away from it. But it's surrendering that relationship or that time or that thing to God and loosely holding on to it with faith, hope, and love. Because here's what I know about resurrection. What I know to be true about resurrection after reading this 15th chapter is that resurrection is not just a promise for the future, but resurrection is a plan for living a full life now.